Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to a special episode this week of The Naked Scientist. You're with me, Chris Smith, and I'm joined by some of the world's best fossil experts, including one man who's discovered not one, but two of our caveman ancestors, and also a scientist who can get the original tissues out of remains that are millions of years old. This week we're exploring our human story, from the use of tools and fire to ritualistic behaviour and, ultimately, where we all came from. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now with me this week, all the way from the University of the Watersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, is Professor Lee Berger. Uh, since I've known him, he's discovered two new species of early human ancestor. Hello, Lee. Hi. And uh, actually, when I first met you, it's nearly a decade ago that that happened, you picked me up from my hotel. I met you at a meeting and you said, tomorrow I'm going to collect you from your hotel and I'm going to show you something that's going to change your life. And you've gone on and done that actually not once, not twice, but three times now. So it's uh, actually nice that you're here in the UK rather than in Johannesburg, where it, those encounters of privacy happened. It's actually the first time and it's great to be here. Also, uh, Thomas Prophet is here. Now, we have achieved the previously unachievable. We've persuaded a scientist from the University of Oxford to actually come to Cambridge. <laughs> Thomas, thank you very much. Thomas is a primate archaeologist. He's also studying stone tools that ancient people and, it turns out, apes have been making. Absolutely. Good to have you with us. And Matthew Collins, uh, he is a biochemist from the University of York and also the University of Copenhagen. And he is using cutting-edge new technology to extract some of the original tissues and biomolecules that were laid down in ancient fossils when they were actually living. A very warm welcome to you as well, Matthew. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Now, let's begin our, our look at our human story with some explanation of the timeline that we're considering here, because it is quite a long one and there tends to be a lot of complicated terminology. So, Lee, why don't you wind us back to when we last shared an ancestor with a chimpanzee or an ape, that kind of thing? What What is the basic story of our origins? So, the genetic record, as well as the fossil record, 
correspond with an idea that around six to seven million years ago, we split off from a ape somewhere in Africa and began a journey as bipedal apes. We call those the hominins or hominids. And that journey progressed in the old story, at least the simplified story, from becoming first bipedal. Then we came down from the trees. We acquired at some point in their tools. The brains got larger and we set ourselves up for the origins of the genus Homo, which is typically been viewed as a big brain species using relatively complex tools, and that would lead in the last two million years or so to the origins of us. So between six million and two million years ago, what sorts of creatures, our human relatives, were there knocking around? So in the earliest part of this, we have creatures that go by names such as Ardipithecus, and then later the Australopithecines or Australopithecus. Those names really aren't so important. If you think of that earlier period, where you're thinking of something that is effectively more ape-like, traditionally thought of to have a smaller brain, and generally more ape-like bodies, but still bipedal, thick enamel, small canines, things that characterize the hominids. And then after that, we have traditionally thought that there was larger brains, more complex tools, more complex behavior, long-distance walking, these sort of things. We've typically put those in the genus Homo. What do we think made these individuals change over time and become ultimately us? What well, drove them to do that? Well, it's, you could ask almost any paleoanthropologist and they'd probably give you a different answer to that. But uh, traditionally, we viewed it as ecological stresses, responses to the environment that would drive small changes, all these accumulating to build micro changes in a lineage. But I don't want to give the impression of this being some sort of straight linear line. The idea of that T-shirt that you see of the evolving human from an ape to a human, that's wrong. And certainly the discoveries of the last decade or so in paleoanthropology are showing that, that we can't view human evolution as simple. Now, Lee's got us up to roughly two ish million years ago, Thomas. So what happens between two million years ago and the sort of time when we're around? Well, it's at that point you start to see stone tools being produced. And it's a little bit before that. Very recently, last year, they've, they've found now the earliest stone tools in Kenya. Uh, and these are dated to 3.3. So they would have been around at the same time as the Australopithecines. Um, but traditionally, up, up until last year, uh, we see the very first stone tool technology. And that uh, has been seen as being associated with Homo habilis, so they're the first species of the, the Homo genus. So from about two million years ago, you get these this genus Homo comes along and and habilis meaning, you know, handy, using hands to make stuff. Yes, absolutely. That stone tool technology stays with Homo habilis essentially for around a million years, a bit over a million years, until uh, you see the onset of the Achillean, which is a, a more complex technology. But that coincides with the emergence of Homo erectus or egaster in Africa. And that's what, uh, a million years ago? That no, about 1.7, 1.8 million years ago. And then Homo erectus. Homo erectus carries, carries on. on. Absolutely. And that does that then hand on, Matthew, to, to Neanderthals? Where do they fit into the picture? It was kind of simple in the past because we had Neanderthals and then the moderns come in. And the moderns come in, they wipe the Neanderthals out. But of course, the things I'm interested in, the molecules, and now the molecules are starting to tell a new and different story. Because what we're now seeing, of course, first of all, is that inside us, we have bits of Neanderthal. But in, the, in addition, there's another group that's been discovered from molecular data called the Denisovans. And even there's been some hints in the last couple of weeks of another species based entirely on the DNA found in hominids, so-called species X. So in fact, the story, which was quite simple, seems to be getting ever more complicated. 
Lee, yes, do summarize and try and draw these strands together for I us. I think an important point that comes out of, of what's being led in here is that we thought we had a very simple record. We thought we had it figured out. Archaeology seemed to correspond with a fossil record. What I think has been overlooked by paleoanthropologists, archaeologists, and perhaps the public uh, as well, is the idea that we have almost no direct association of these tools and this archaeology and these cultures with the physical species. We've just assumed that there's one species at one time, that the fossils that we find in a particular area broadly in the same time belong to a particular archaeology. And yet that may not be true. As recently as 15 years ago, I could sit in a conference where you would hear senior scientists say there was only one species living at any one time in the past within our lineage. That was wrong. Okay, well, you've learned one definite fact here on The Naked Scientist so far. Matthew, let's turn to you then, because uh, we've dwelled on fossils and remains and stone tools and things. But one of the things that you are a specialist in is actually interrogating these fossils, not just by looking at them, but it's becoming apparent that what a fossil is made of isn't just stone anymore. Yeah, Tell I mean, us more. For me, that's the really exciting new findings that have come out in a very, very short period of time, in fact. It's only really in the last decade that we've been, been able to systematically start to recover molecular data from these fossils. By molecular data, just explain what you mean by that. Well, I guess we're all familiar with the idea of DNA. We're all made of our DNA. And the discovery was made more like 20 years ago now that some DNA was surviving in some fossils. They were relatively young, some of the latest Neanderthals, and short, short fragments were surviving. But then really dramatic changes in technology have developed so much that we can begin to recover far more detailed genetic information. So we've now got complete genomes of Neanderthals and of Denisovans. And what's really remarkable about the Denisovan genome is it comes from merely a fingernail bone and a tooth. So tiny amounts of material are releasing this wonderful, rich molecular data. The problem with that is that record, that DNA record, isn't going that far back in time. So we've, we've already talked about the long story, the six million years of evolution. Sadly, the DNA record seems to fall away within about 400,000 years. You've got the Neanderthals, you've got moderns, but you don't go any further back. Why? Well, the problem with DNA is it's a very fragile molecule. Not that fragile, because it survives for quite a long time, but it's quite a complex molecule, and some of the bonds that create DNA are relatively high-energy bonds that are quite easy to break. So what we've been trying to do is look at other molecular sequences. DNA makes a thing called proteins. When you look around your hair, your skin, that's all protein. So what we've been trying to do is get information sequence data from the proteins. So just to summarise this then, DNA is a recipe book in a cell. Yeah. That recipe tells cells how to make proteins. So if you know what proteins a cell is making, you can sort of work out what genes must have made it. And you're saying because DNA is more flimsy than proteins, instead of going looking for just DNA, which we can only go back half a million years or so, if we go looking for the proteins actually we can go back potentially a lot further. Yeah, and the half million years is also is caution because most of the DNA work that's been done has been done in very cold places and that's not where humans evolved. Tell us then, where have you been working and trying to pursue this? So where we've gone is to the kind of classic hominid sites, but we haven't been looking for hominids themselves. We've gone to the humble ostrich eggshell. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of them about. So if you're developing new techniques, it's relatively easy to get a 
hold of the material. Because these sites are so well studied, we have very good dating control on those sites. And with eggshells, they're fairly large. They have proteins trapped inside them. And we've been able to develop protocols to get those proteins out. You've been to places where people like Lee dig up the remains of our human relatives and they date them very carefully. So if you find a piece of ostrich egg there in the same sort of context as Lee's digging up stuff he's dated to within an inch of its life you can be reasonably confident that your piece of ostrich egg is that date. That's right. I mean, the only places that people care to date that kind of material are where hominids are found. So we've gone to some of the classic hominid sites. And how old are these bits of ostrich egg that you're looking at? Well, we've, we've deliberately gone progressively back further and further in time because we did not know at what point the sequences would run out. And that was a big surprise, as I say. They went back and back and back and back. And in fact, we still have sequences in the oldest thing that we've so far analysed. 3.8 million years. So you've got a bit of ostrich egg from 3.8 million years ago. And and you can get the proteins out of it. And we can get partial protein sequences out. We don't get the full proteome of the ostrich, but we get partial protein sequences. So putting this in perspective, when that ostrich laid their egg 3.8 million years ago, material that it deposited in the egg is still there and you can extract it. Its DNA told it to make proteins. It made the proteins. The proteins made the eggshell. And some of that sequence is still there. I mean, it's really remarkable. Really and you remarkable. can get it out. And can you read the, the amino acid building blocks that make up the proteins so you can work out the genetic code of the ostrich that laid the egg? Yeah, we can only read part of it because not all the protein survives. And that, one of the things we've been trying to understand which parts survive and which don't. But absolutely, we can read the sequence and then we can compare the sequence with a modern ostrich. So, Lee, are the materials that you are extracting from sites in South Africa of sufficiently high quality in terms of their preservation that you could have a conversation with Matthew, for example, and potentially apply his techniques because they overlap in time. Why we've already had that conversation just this afternoon. (laughs) I mean, it's sort of remarkable doing this in Cambridge. I was at the Eagle Pub last night and uh, where this all actually started. You know, the the idea that that we're now combining what were thought to be separate streams that would never reach each other. DNA was like a railroad track running next to a river, which was the hominid fossil record and protein was off on the other side. That we're now seeing these incredible advances that are bringing all three of these critical sciences, each needing each other, into building a picture of the complexity of where ostriches come from, but also where our lineage comes from, what it did at any one time. Well, where I was getting at this is that if Matthew can work out the, or at least partial genetic code of an ostrich, can we pull the same stunt for Naledi, Homo Naledi, one of the species that you have uncovered? Do you have material that could be amenable I to can, I can tell you we will try it. I think all of us are concerned about the destruction of relatively precious material uh, for these sort of stays, particularly in the early stages. But the fantastic point is that as we are beginning to push people further and further by saying, no, you can't until you get the technique on smaller amounts. But it will happen, and we are going to learn extraordinary things, I would predict. How much stuff do you need, Matthew, to do this? Well, I mean, Lee's quite right. We should not be destroying samples until we know exactly what we're doing. Now, we're working with pretty small samples of ostrich eggshell at the moment, considerably less than a, a teaspoonful of salt. But still, I think we can get better. What we want to try and do is get as much information as we can out of these samples. So we're still in the stage of developing the techniques before we work on these really valuable fossils. And what has changed in recent years that means that you are now able to do this where you couldn't before? How do you do it? We have ridden on the back of medical technology, in a sense, 
because people, once they'd sequenced the genomes, they became interested in what the DNA was doing, so looking for the proteins. And so the medical world has been developing more rapid and more sensitive instrumentation. And what's been remarkable for us is that it wasn't possible with the instruments from the last generation. It's only the last couple of years the machines have been good enough to detect these tiny amounts of proteins and also to map the damage on the proteins so that we can actually tell an ancient from a modern sample. Absolutely amazing stuff. Now, Matthew's ostrich eggs actually come from hominid sites. And these are areas that have been identified as places of early human ancestors or relatives activity. And that's either through the discovery of human remains or early human remains there, or through other artefacts that are considered to be uniquely human. Now, one such artefact is a particular type of stone tool that's been found in sites as old as 3.3 million years. And it's often used as a marker that the site was employed by early humans. But in a paper in Nature last month, the Oxford University's Thomas Prophet has speculated that these so-called tools might have a very different story to tell. Now, it's really nice because you've actually come in, Thomas, and, and you've brought stuff in. And we really like it when you, yes. people bring things in because we can actually see them and, and, <laughs> um, and talk about them. On the table in front of me, looks like you've been to the beach. Lots of stones. Tell me what they are. What we have here are stone flakes, and they're made from various raw materials that we find in East Africa. So we have uh, some, some lava, some basalt flakes, and we have some quartzite flakes, which is this incredibly pretty-looking white translucent material. By flakes, you're just saying thin, sort thin of slivers, if you thin like. Thin slivers of, of stone, basically, that have been taken off a, a larger core, a larger piece of stone. Uh, and the way that hominins produce these flakes, and this is one of the characteristic tools that we first see in the archaeological record, in the material record of hominins, is through a, a process called napping. And they produce these flakes in a controlled fashion, through a very specific mechanism called conchoidal fracture. And we do not see this conchoidal fracture repeated or evident in the natural world, and we don't definitely don't see it often in the primate world. Even though primates use stone tools, they use them for nutcracking and for various percussive behaviours, the way that this these types of flakes are produced is not the same process as you see with the nutcracking. So basically... These are of a particular shape or configuration that nature just wouldn't do that. Absolutely. You very rarely get a, a, a sharp cutting edged flake produced naturally by nature. And what we find in the earliest, even in the very earliest archaeological assemblages, are many, many flakes in the same place. So it's, it's a very hominin behaviour. So what have you been doing with your monkeys? In northeast Brazil, um, we have a number of groups of capuchins that live in Sierra de Capivara National Park. These are just monkeys? These are just monkeys. These are um, New World monkeys. They're capuchin monkeys. They're one of the three tool-using primates that we know of. And what we have with the capuchins is they actually use stone tools for more a much more varied range of behaviours than any other primate. And they use them for uh, nutcracking, the same as other primates. They use them for digging. So they'll, they'll, the, the ground is relatively hard in this part of Brazil, so they will use them to, to loosen up the ground, basically, uh, to dig for spiders and dig for roots. And they use them for uh, sexual displays, so the females will throw them at the males. Gosh, that's some Valentine's gift, isn't Absolutely, it? You get hit by yes. a rock. <laughs> How does that work? Well, I mean, it's just a way of getting attention, I think. <laughs> right. I think that's all, all it is. Um, but they also do this very strange behaviour, which we've called stone-on-stone -stone percussion. And it's where uh, the capuchin will pick up a hammerstone and repeatedly impact another quartz cobble. Just bash them together. Basically, the quartz cobble is embedded in a conglomerate. It's embedded in a cliff face. And the capuchins will climb up onto the cliff face with their hammerstone. And they will repeatedly hit this embedded stone. Now, are you telling me that they do this interesting behaviour and go and smash stones together because you are going to go in the direction that sometimes the stones break? Absolutely. So the hammerstone that they are using, the hammerstone that they're holding with their hands, will relatively frequently 
break. They will, it will fracture. And because it's quartzite, because it's a raw material which is very amenable to this uh, type of conchoidal fracture, entirely unintentionally what these capuchins are doing, they are producing many flakes. The stone artifacts that they are leaving on the ground, the primate archaeological record, about 30% of that assemblage are, are flakes. It isn't the same number of flakes that you see by hominins, but they do have the exact same characteristics. Is one possibility then that actually when we say we find these flakes at important sites where early human relatives were active, that in fact we're inferring that this is evidence of early human activity when in fact it could have been simple early primates like your capuchin monkeys knocking stones together and making these flakes? There's quite an important distinction here, I think. The early archaeological record is far more complex than anything we see produced by the capuchins. The capuchins are making flakes, the hominins are making flakes in, in ways that are more complex, in a much more varied way. They're also producing a lot more flakes than the capuchins will ever produce. And we know that the hominins are often using these flakes for butchering and for cutting um, organic materials like plants or wood. So we know that the hominins are producing a flake as a tool, whereas with the capuchins, they're producing a flake unintentionally, and they're never using it. Ne they never have any intention of ever using a sharp cutting edge. But could we nonetheless be misled when we find these flakes into thinking that was evidence that humans and our ancestors, our human relatives, were active in a site, and in fact they weren't, it was these monkeys? So yes, yeah, so, I mean, if I found these materials in correctly dated sediments in East Africa two, three million years ago, um, without knowing that primates do this behavior, I would automatically assume that these are artifacts. The only known individual or the only known species that make this type of artifacts are hominins. But I think what's, what's really important or really interesting about this material is it gives us an insight into the processes that may have led to the emergence of stone tool technology, not that we have yeah. to reclassify it. Well, I was going to say, what, what does this do to our thinking? What are the implications off the back of the paper you've published on this. So what we have is a, here is, a, is another primate that gives a window into what type of behaviour may have led to the production of flakes, which may have produced sharp cutting edges and put them in the environment for them to use. Is another important interpretation or deduction from this that the ability to make these things, we've always ascribed that to a highly intelligent or a developing intellect, yet you're showing here that with these beautiful stones that something with actually a very small brain is capable nonetheless of producing something that is quite useful. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, the fracture mechanic, conchoidal fracture, has long been seen as a, as a watershed moment in hominin evolution. The understanding of this fracture mechanic opened up the world of, of stone tool technology to hominins. Uh, and now we see that actually conchoidal fracture isn't necessarily uniquely, unique to hominins now. It's now unique to, to primates. Modern monkeys are producing this type of material. They don't have a particularly large brain. They also have in incredibly... Um, compared to hominin hands, relatively um, unadvanced hands. So they're, they're hands that have evolved for arboreal tree climbing, basically. And they're not, they haven't evolved for tool use, and they haven't evolved for uh, the same range of, of motions as human hands have. So we have questions about how complex a hand morphology also has to be to, to produce archaeological material that we would classify as uniquely human. I feel less and less important with every minute of this show that goes by. Thank you very much, Thomas Prophet. He's from the University of Oxford and he published the work he was just telling you about there in Nature just last month. Now, the presence of tools are often used to show a hominin site, but of course the clues are even clearer if you find human or human relatives remains. So how much can the odd bit of skeleton really show you? Well, Connie Orbach went to meet UCL's Maria Martinon-Torres, who's been getting her teeth into the topic. We really look at the skeletons and the skeletons really show very important differences between species that we can really 
try to investigate to understand what that anatomy was well suited for, which type of behavior, locomotion they were having or changes throughout the human evolution. So we were more robust, now we are more gracile. But particularly in this aspect, it's very interesting to look at the dentition because teeth are really, really very useful, apart from being the skeletal part that uh, usually gets more well preserved in the fossil record. But the interesting part about teeth is the size, but mostly the shape of the teeth are genetically designed. So in a way, they are really reflecting in a very conservative manner some type of genetic inheritance. So all those little cusps, grooves we see, these little tubercles and things that we're looking at, each of those traits have a strong genetic component. You know, So we cannot really always look at the genes to really see the genetics of the species because not always the DNA is preserved. But by comparing this pattern of groove, cusps and the shape of the teeth, we can really try to infer the type of kinship that was with extinct species. And have you got any examples that you yes. can show me? Sure. Oh, fantastic. Oh, specimen store. Yes. Oh my gosh. There's so many, so many skulls. Yes. This is a chimpanzee, a female chimpanzee. This is a human. This is a paranthropus or robust Australopithecus. And this is a gracile Australopithecus, like the group where Lucy belonged to. Okay. Yeah. What can we see from the teeth here? I would say that the big difference is that Homo sapiens became very boring, very simple. We have very simplified teeth, very small in general and in absolute and relative terms, so that we have a small teeth, but it's not only about size. If we look at the morphology, you have quite simple occlusal faces, the part you use for chewing. You don't really see many features, many grooves, it's just quite simple. However, the teeth of other species that were more primitive, here I'm showing you, for example, Australopithecus robustus, is not only about the size, which you can really see yeah. the difference in the size of the teeth, but also look at this, they are much more baroque. So you really have many more grooves, accessory caspals, you know, it's really much more complicated occlusal surfaces than those that we have. And you can really see why we have so much smaller jaws than monkeys things, because our teeth are so much smaller to fit in in the first place. I would say that there is a less of a pressure on our mastication because mm. we really help ourselves with something else than with teeth. With tongue tools, with uh, fire and cooking, we rely less on our teeth for survival. In the past, it was really an issue. Nowadays, we don't need to be the healthiest or the strongest to survive. Sometimes it's the one who has better connections, the one who survives. In fact, some of us don't have teeth. Yeah, indeed. So, yeah, you know, it's not anymore like the fittest mean the strongest physically, you know. <laughs> it's about your contacts, your friendships maybe, your influence or your money, you know. So in, in that sense, it really has changed a lot, our relationship with the world and with the group. And we'll be looking into how our social selves evolved in more detail later in the programme. That was Maria Martin on Torres. She's at University College London. Now, you're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and this week we are devoting the entire show to uncovering our origins. How did we get to where we are today? And are we really all that special? With me are paleoanthropologist Lee Berger, biochemist Matthew Collins and archaeologist Thomas Prophet. Now, if the Jungle Book is anything to go by, man's mastery of fire is what really truly sets us apart from our ape cousins. 
But just how integral was the role of fire in making us what we are today? According to Harvard University's Richard Wrangham, it was absolutely vital. Connie Orbach heard how. The cooking hypothesis is the hypothesis that the way that humans stopped being basically just another kind of great ape all had to do with our control of fire. The idea is that somewhere around two million years ago, pre-humans got sufficiently good at controlling fire that they came to rely on it completely. A major effect was to give us more energy. Uh, Another effect was to give us the body shape that we have today. Another one was to reduce the amount of time that we had to spend chewing. And a major effect was to give us ultimately our big brains. And that's why the control of fire made us human. Why would this change in body shape, more energy, lead to a big brain? The brain comes from a supply of energy that is exceptionally large in humans compared to any other species. So our basal metabolic rate, when we're just lying around doing nothing, sleeping, we're sending something between 20 and 25% of all the calories we use into the brain. No other animal can afford that, and we could not afford it if we were eating raw food. And there are two reasons for that. One is that we would spend so much time chewing our food that uh, we would not be able to do anything else. It's been calculated that we would be spending something like 10 hours a day just chewing in order to be able to get enough raw food to supply our brain. And the other reason is that in humans, the one part of our body that is really outstandingly small compared to other primates such as great apes is our gut system. Our uh, intestines are reduced in size by something like 30% compared to a great ape, and that saves us energy, and that energy can be diverted to go to the brain. Cooking makes our food so much more digestible that we can afford to have a smaller gut than we would have if we were a great ape. This hypothesis, it certainly is very compelling. I find it incredibly interesting, but it's not been accepted by everyone, has it? What are the problems with it? Well, the big problem is is a single one, which is that uh, we don't have direct evidence of the control of fire going back to the time when, whenever it turns out, that Homo erectus really did uh, emerge. And uh, the problem, of course, is that fire is something that is not easily evidenced in the fossil or the archaeological record. So we have very good evidence of the control of fire in the last quarter of a million years, By the time you get to three quarters of a million years, it's only just a handful of sites. And then at one million years ago, there's literally one site in Funderwerk in South Africa. And after that, between one and two million years ago, you have uh, maybe a dozen sites where people have said, we think that we can see evidence for the control of fire here, but we're not absolutely certain. And so it'll be wonderful to look forward to the time when people are able to use techniques of higher resolution to be able to look in that period. Could there have been another solution other than fire, for example, pummeling food, cutting it very finely, something like that? Yeah, pounding food is a really interesting idea as an alternative to cooking. But even with electrical blending of foods, it is impossible to get enough energy to satisfy the energy demands. There was one particular study of several hundred German raw foodists led by Corinna Kobnik. And what she did was to assess the degree to which women's ovulatory cycle, their menstrual cycle, uh, continued to operate. And what she found was that by the time women were eating 100% of their food raw, 
50% of the women uh, were amenorrheic. That meant they weren't menstruating at all. And so obviously they weren't ovulating and could not have a baby. So someone in the human body frame, uh, as we know it now, cannot survive on raw food in the wild because even in urban conditions where the food is uh, providing lots of energy, it's being blended, uh, people aren't taking much exercise, and they're getting food all year from supermarkets, uh, nevertheless, uh, they, an average woman is unable to have a baby. Hmm. How are we going to come to a conclusion about this hypothesis one way or the other? <laughs> Yeah, we still don't know um, what's going to happen. You know, we don't have a clear plan for uh, assessing the evidence for fire in the distant past. I know of places where people are are looking at ancient sites and are feeling encouraged by what they're seeing. In the years since my book was published, uh, there have been several sites that were older than any previously known. So I assume that uh, we will eventually find them. But different sites produce different kinds of technical hazards. And so there isn't going to be one single approach. You know, I was very struck by the fact that the site at Vandewerk in South Africa, uh, I think it's the only extant cave with a, a living floor that has been looked at. And lo and behold, it's one million years old. Uh, they find uh, evidence of fire there, the only one in Africa. What they did was to show that inside the cave, something like 30 meters deep, there was ash uh, at the one million year level indicating that there was a consistent reintroduction of flammable material into the cave, and no one can think of any way that that could have happened unless people had been bringing the fuel in. So that's an example of an unusual kind of situation, and what we have to just hope for is the discovery of more unusual situations which will be able to test the fire hypothesis directly. Harvard University's Richard Rangham. Seem feasible to you, Lee? In part, I think it's it's obvious that the controlled use of fire, the cooking of meat, would have had tremendous impact upon any hominids which happened to do it, whether they were direct ancestors of humans or others. I think the the more controversial part of to sort of summarize that is is that event associated with the encephalization, the increasing brain size? And it's it, associated in that's time, right. but we can't say one caused the other. Well, we think it's associated in time, and I think that Richard was doing a good point of of talking about the lack of evidence, very similar to the lack of association between hominid species and archaeology. I guess a falsification of that hypothesis would be if we happen to find a very small brain hominid um, that was using fire and wasn't undergoing that sort of encephalization. But he is right. These caves, the exploration needs to be done. It is probably going to be in a cave where we find these sort of direct associations. And I think there's real possibilities of breakthroughs in testing these hypotheses. Uh, in the future. Matthew, are fire remains easy to find? And is there any other proxy marker we could use for this? Well, listening to Richard, one is brought to mind of the fact that we do have this growth on the teeth, dental plaque, dental calculus. And what we have found in Neanderthals is evidence of particulate material ash from fire. So if it's a long shot, but there was calculus in some of this material, and we could find evidence of burning trapped in the calculus, that will be a direct line of evidence. Very nice. Thank you very much, Matthew. Now, on the subject of tools and fire, these are elements that we as mankind have bent to our will and made us successful and aided our evolution. But what qualities have we developed as a result of that evolution that help us to stand apart from other animals? Well, one quality believed to be uniquely human is our ability to place ourselves mentally in the shoes of others to work out what another individual is thinking. This is called a theory of mind. But 
it might not be so uniquely human after all, as Connie Allback discovered. Oh, they're so beautiful. Who's this? This is Keto. Keto. So she is um, one of the probably most tame ones. Um. (gasps) Hello. So yeah, don't be alarmed. She only has one eye because she had an injury. Oh no, what Um, happened? As you got caught with a net. Meet Keto, a Eurasian J. She can tell us a surprising amount about what it means to be human. She, she loves the larvae. Yes, these are their favourite foods. <laughs> I think they've been eating this quite a lot when they were hand-raised. Mm. So these are definitely their favourite, favourite larvae. All- She's one of nine jays being studied by Jirka Ostjevic in her lab at the University of Cambridge to try and establish whether jays are capable of theory of mind. And by that I mean the ability to attribute mental states to others. So a very simple example is if you ask a over four-year-old child, while, for example, I'm going to the fridge, it might say, well, she wants ice cream. So in this case, a child would explain my behaviour based on my desires. It might also say something like, she put the ice cream box in the, in the fridge yesterday, so she knows it's still there. So in this case, it would also impute some kind of belief state or some knowledge state to me. This perspective-taking is something that all humans over the age of four can do and has long been considered a uniquely human trait. But what if it's not? Well, that's where the jays come in. Jurka took me outside to the aviary for a closer look. So this is the aviary where they live in. So there's loads of... Oh, wait a minute. Enrichment. Enrichment. So that's these toys, basically. Yeah. It's a bit like a children's playground. Yeah. But a bit more airborne. (laughs) Yeah. So they like to kind of swing on things and go into into boxes and all sorts of things. It also helps with experiments because given that they're so neophobic, giving them a lot of new objects in the aviary helps them also then deal with testing apparatus much quicker. So these birds are quite interesting for us because they exhibit two natural behaviours that we can use quite nicely for experimental setups. So the first behaviour that we utilise is the caching behaviour. Especially in autumn, these birds will collect nuts that are available to them. In nature, that would be uh, mostly acorns. In the aviary, it's mostly peanuts because they love them. And they will hide them for later consumption. So if you see now, she's putting her head into the gravel, putting the nuts in, and then she will take on some stones in the end to put them on top. So, so that's her hiding the nuts that's her for later. the nuts for later, yeah. Eurasian jays and most other corvids can remember where they left their food and come back for it later. But that presents them with a problem, because if any other jay sees them caching, then bingo, that jay will know too. Not so secret, after all. Now that means that once the cacher is gone, the observer comes and can very effectively steal the caches made. And this has led to the hypothesis that it might be beneficial for cachers to have evolved cache protection strategies to minimise pilfering loss. And this is where theory of mind comes in. Because if jays do try to hide their food from watching thieves while they could be attributing a knowledge state to another bird. The researchers here test the birds by observing their behaviour in this situation and others to look for conclusive proof of theory of mind. So far, I think every published experiment can be criticised in that it might afford some kind of behaviour reading rather than attribution of a mental state. Currently, where we are with food sharing is that we are trying to really test what kind of behaviour reading might be going on and if it doesn't go on, whether maybe the attribution of the underlying uh, desire might be necessary. Most theory of mind research is done either on corvids or primates, 
And so far it has been very difficult to use explicit measures of behaviour to look at um, theory of mind in primates. Some researchers would argue that we have very good evidence that primates understand others' knowledge states, kind of whether they can see or not. Where so far there has been no evidence until very recently is that primates might understand when another individual might have a false belief. So false belief is when you believe something that isn't actually true anymore because something has changed in reality. If we were to discover that some animals, all animals, a proportion of animals, <laughs> uh, do exhibit theory of mind, what would that mean in terms of our understanding of our place in the world as humans? So for those researchers who think that theory of mind is a unique human ability, they would have to rethink that. The other thing about humans is that we maybe have to rethink the way we view them regarding theory of mind anyway, because we do have some research showing that theory of mind is not something that we always use or that we use very correctly. So even though we are definitely capable of that ability, in everyday situations, we sometimes are not as good as it, at it as we like to think. So there's a lot of research showing that we are biased by our own knowledge states, by our own desire states, when we want to respond to other people's desires or other people's knowledge states. And this is also something that we're also finding, for example, with these Jays, that they're also biased by their current desire when they need to respond to someone else's desire. So perhaps we're not quite so special after all. Cambridge University's Yurka Ostjevic with her Eurasian Jays. And you're with me. Chris Smith, for a special look at what it means to be human. If you have any thoughts or questions, comments, etc., you can email them to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists. We heard just now how some of our higher mental functions might not be quite as unique as we had thought. But what about other aspects of culture, like religion or rituals? Again, we had complacently assumed that these were the sole preserve of us modern humans. Or maybe not, because the announcement in 2015 of the discovery of another early human relative, Homo naledi, suggests that these individuals could have been burying their dead. One of the people who helped to discover them is with us today. That was Lee Berger. So, Lee, how did all this come about? Well, first to correct it, I didn't do the discovery. My team did. Um, It was discovered in a most remarkable series of events led by two amateur explorers who were working with us who shimmied down a seven and a half inch slot, almost 60 feet underground into a chamber. And there in that chamber was the most remarkable hominid cache perhaps ever discovered in history. Uh, We did an underground expedition in November of 2013 uh, to recover what I thought wrongly was a single skeleton. At the end of that 21-day expedition, we'd found more individual hominin remains had been discovered in South Africa in the last 90 years. It was tremendous, and there are thousands of remains left down there. What was important was that not only was it a new species, this tiny, small-brained species with amongst the smallest brain ever found in the hominid A, around 450 to 550 cubic centimeters, just slightly larger than eight. So that's a third of, say, your brain size, my brain size. That's right. And uh, individuals that are about five and a half feet tall, which is quite tall, but with very ape-like shoulders, but human-like hands that are very, very curved, like the most primitive of our ancestors, a primitive pelvis like Lucy's, but long human-like legs and and a human-like feet. 
that would be incredible in itself, and to find a cache of new hominid species unexpected like that. But what was, I think, even more remarkable was that we eliminated pretty much every other reason for them being there. They weren't dragged there by predators. They weren't washed there. They weren't, as I received an email yesterday, eaten by a giant snake and deposited there, or many other things. But the 15 individuals that we've taken out so far, and there are many more in there, we believe were placed there or dropped there by their own members of their own species. Now, just to be clear, this is in South Africa. It's not far from Johannesburg. It's right outside of uh, Johannesburg, an area that is called the Cradle of Humankind and UNESCO World Heritage Site. And many of the richest fossil discoveries in all of history, some of them that Richard was referring to, even archaeological discoveries like some of the oldest evidence for the controlled use of fire at a site like Swartkrons, is only 800 meters away from here. It was right under our nose. Is there any other explanation for how these individuals could have got there, such as they fell in um, or they had another entrance and it was their home? We see got locked in and couldn't get we out. see no evidence of collapse that came in over time and they didn't come in all at once. It wasn't a mass death. They weren't washed in there. There's no predatory damage. And so we came to the perhaps controversial conclusion that the best explanation was this tiny brained ancient human relative was likely putting its dead in this place, separating them from other animals and caching them away. Now, why is that remarkable? People will say, oh, elephants do that. They're elephant graveyards. No, they don't. Could they not have been driven in there uh, by no. a, a more intelligent being that, that, was, <laughs> that was using them as food? I think you're asking a question that often I think my colleagues and I find remarkable. Why would we look for a special pleading case, inventing some hurricane outside or asteroid coming or humans ritually disposing a pet symmetry sort of way? Rather than just accepting we've been wrong about human special behavior, human identity and the idea that we're the only creature that could possibly understand its own mortality or some of the other implications or want to keep its dead away from the natural environment because they know they as individuals are going to die. It wasn't easy for them to get in there, was it? I wonder why they went to such extraordinary lengths to do that. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think all you would have to do if we are right about this hypothesis is look at the great extreme efforts that humans go to prevent their bodies from being taken by the natural elements. We build tombs, we build tunnels, we build catacombs. If you are not in a constructive age then perhaps finding somewhere very deep and remote within a cave is is the best place you know that nothing's going to get to your body. You've been quite cautious about dating these specimens. Do we know how old they are or are you prepared to admit how old they are yet or do you not have the evidence yet? I know how they are, old they are right now. My colleagues know how old they are right now. We are in the process of peer review, uh, submission of the papers and peer review. It won't be long. We've been cautious for good reason. We wanted the morphology judged for itself. People have said they're like primitive homo erective. People have guessed at the age. People have said two, two million years old, a million years old. I can tell you that whatever age homo naledi is, which you'll earn, learn about early next year, it's going to be quite shocking to the entirety of the archaeological and paleoanthropological community because we have not only this species that exists but also this potential complex behavior. And these are individuals who are clearly not our ancestors. They are quite different from us. We don't know that. The other lesson that came first from Sediba in 2010 and Homo naledi is that we should be extraordinarily cautious about trying to 
put pins and say, this is our ancestor. This one gave rise to us. Firstly, the fossil records showing that we don't have that amount of information. There are many different species that are out there all experimenting. Second, the genetic information, the information from proteins, everything else is telling us that there may even be intermixings. I think this linear idea of evolution needs to be replaced by something like a braided stream idea, that species diverge and converge back and forth at different times, and that we're a result of this very deep, very complex experimentation and evolution over hundreds of thousands and millions of years. I think we're going to have to have you back, aren't we, Lee, to fill us in on the rest of it. Incidentally, um, Thomas Prophet is also with us. Thomas, do your primates that you study, do they show any interesting ritualistic behaviour? Well, in- interestingly, a couple of months ago, there was a, a paper published about the chimpanzees in, in the Thai forest in West Africa and in the Ivory Coast, where they found that Many, many chimpanzees were, basically you have these large trees with large buttressed roots. And within these buttressed roots, they found these very strange caches of stones. And they put camera traps in and they they observed these chimpanzees. And what they found was that often a male chimpanzee would come rushing past the tree. They would pick up one of these stones and they would throw it back into the buttressed root whilst exclaiming or or shouting. And And they would do this repeatedly. And this has been suggested as a potential ritualistic behaviour. So it served no benefit to them to just dump a stone, a bit like us climbing up a mountain and building a cairn by heaping up stones. It's, it's, this is what they're doing. It's the, the, exact, the exact mountain word, monkey and chimpanzee. It's the exact word they used, absolutely. They used the word cairn. Yeah, I mean, we don't know why they're doing this. It could be something to do with communicating communicating over long distances in the rainforest. I mean, they make a very loud noise, but they equally make a very loud noise when you just hit one of these buttressed roots. So they don't know why they're doing this. And so the general rule of thumb is if you don't know why you're doing something or why they're doing something, it's a, it's a ritualistic behaviour. Thank you, Thomas. So it seems, sadly, piece by piece, some of our most treasured human traits are not that special and unique to us after all. But no man is an island, and that seems truer today than ever before with technology giving us the ability to stay connected with people all over the world. But how did this come about? Connie Orbach went back to UCL to find out. Bye. So I had to take a call. That's all right. Yeah, I'm Matt Pope. I'm an archaeologist based at the UCL Institute of Archaeology. Humans, if we look at them on the planet today, are more than cooperative. We're absolutely hyper-social. Getting the ability for millions of large-bodied primates with lots of different inclinations, lots of different urges to live together in very close proximity isn't a miracle. It's the result of a long process of evolution. A lot of the evolutionary theory looking at the development of human cognition has changed out of all recognition in the past uh, 10 or 15 years. No longer is it you know, classical reasoning and logic that's driving the human brain. It's social cognition. It's our ability to live together, to manage those large groupings that's become one of the big drivers of our evolutionary journey. What caused this change from less cooperative to suddenly these hyper-cooperative? Certainly by 1.8 million years ago, we're seeing a wide range of different environments being exploited and a dispersal from those areas in which our very early stages of evolution took place within, within Africa. There's lots of things underpinning the adaptation to these different environments, but certainly one of the things that I think has kind of been underplayed in our evolution is, is the concept of culture. We can see in primates 
Their technology, their behavior isn't just instinctual, it's taught, it's learned, it's maintained within cultures, maintained within populations. And we're not just hypersocial, we're hypercultural. And a lot of our adaptations are very reliant on effective cultural networks and effective communication. So we moved out to new environments. What did they need from us? What did we suddenly have to do that we didn't have to do before? From the get-go, we're reasonably adaptable. And we're probably very adapted to ecotonal areas on the edges between different ecosystems. But moving outside of Africa certainly seems to have happened in two stages. First of all, we do see hominins appearing in the Caucasus, in the Indian subcontinent, even, even into Eastern Asia. But after a million years ago, we see this extension into northern latitudes. At that point, you need to be able to adapt. You're talking about environments that have extreme seasonality. You're having very cold periods, having periods with, through the year in which there's very little in the way of vegetation resources. And you're going to need humans to adapt both to the different environmental conditions and to the different ecology to subsist. And so how do we do that? It's broken down into two, two different problems. First of all, how do we adapt to different environments? One of the great things that defines human uniqueness on the planet is the scale at which we engineer to protect us and put a barrier between us and an environment. And that's everything from clothing through to shelters through to, to architecture. And all of these things come in and have a, a different part to play. A long part of our early evolution as we adapted to open environments probably resulted in loss of body hair, the only thing that biologically could have insulated us against the cold. So once these, you know, probably hairless, tropically adapted early humans, Homo erectus, Homo ergaster, moved into more northerly latitudes... There may have been some physiological adaptation, but certainly you could have accelerated that simply by using animal skins and other materials to insulate yourself against the against the cold. So how do you study something like this? What are the kind of artefacts you're looking at? OK, so the archaeological record of human evolution is, you know, we pretty much put it down as being 95% stone artefacts. These are the only things that are durable enough to, to last the geological time and geological processes involved. But stone tools can tell us a lot about adaptation. Stone tools go from being very simple cutting objects in the early stages of human evolution, but then we start to see specialised forms. One of those forms we start to see becoming more apparent within Europe are specialised stone tools that have blunted edges on them. Up until that point, stone tools were all about creating sharp edges. But then blunted, hard, tough edges appear and these continue on for a long period of time. And what we think they're being used for is processing skins and processing hides. Turning an animal skin effectively into a durable, weatherproof, insulating membrane. That's one of the examples. At archaeological sites, we'll eventually find traces of fire, not usually until after a half a million years ago, and the traces of, of structures within the archaeological record as well. So we're looking at material traces where humans have come together, transformed objects, whether that be stone, wood, bone, material, to engineer their own living spaces. And in terms of us going forward, we're in a world where we are hyper-social animals, but are more and more interacting on the digital scale. Do you think this is a problem? Do you think we need those social interactions? I think humans are always driven by social interaction and by pushing the limits of it. If we think about a group of uh, chimpanzees operating in a forest, we know that they will keep as close together as they can by the limits of sound. 
We now have an incredible reach as individuals to maintain contact with dispersed social groups in, in a way unimaginable. We've got here not because the technology has allowed us, that's just part of it. It's an imperative. It's an evolutionary imperative to extend, to strengthen, to maintain our connection. Yeah, it can cause problems with some individuals, but actually underlying it is, I think, such a deeply embedded evolutionary driver. I don't think we've really made sense of what we're going to, to do with it yet, but um, certainly I don't think uh, strength of connection has ever been a problem in human evolution. It's, it's often been the answer. UCL's Matt Pope. Lee, do you agree? Well, I think it is a, a important point. While I would disagree that the uh, move in the Northern Hemisphere was perhaps the thing that made us human, I think the issue that we are perhaps the most peaceful, intraspecific species that has ever existed is perhaps one of the very last things. Chimpanzees, other complex primates cooperate with each other. But if you put a group of unrelated members into a room this size, they will rip each other apart. And yet here we have four breeding age males sitting in a room that aren't related to each other having a relatively peaceful conversation. And so <laughs> it may be our last thing. Well, when the show's finished, that may change. But... <laughs> but, but it's going to be a hard thing to test in the archaeological record, but so many sacred cows have been slaughtered in the last few decades from te with technology, with new discoveries. I wouldn't be surprised if this one fell too. Thomas, concur with that? I agree entirely with that. Some primates will also cooperate. You have chimpanzees that will hunt uh, cooperatively, but only for short instances of time and, and only for a very specific reason. Likely said, with the humans, it's far more complex. Matthew? Well, the thing that really, I think, intrigued me was this idea that Lee's saying that these individuals are knowingly burying their dead. That will be one of the real markers. If Lee can show that and find places where we're going to find that again and again, the Hobbin record, that's very exciting. Yeah, why haven't we found this before? Just just briefly. I think we just overlooked it. I think we maybe had a, a Victorian assumption that we were so special. And that was our thing. It goes back to any of the great religious texts. That's our thing. We recognize our own mortality. No other animal does. And sadly, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much to Lee Berger, Matthew Collins and Thomas Prophet for joining us here on our trip through human history. And thank you very much to Connie Orbach for producing the programme. Next week, it's Q&A time. So if you have a science question that you're desperate to hear the answer to, send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll take a look. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts.